I'm now thinking about your birth mom, Leela, and mm-hmm. one of the chapters that was just funny to me, I guess because I have a background in law enforcement, was chapter 13, Awkward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know what else to call it. <laughs> yeah, like the, you really put me there because I pictured me being that officer to stop you too. And, and when you say something on the lines of, well, I don't even know her drinking habits, like in your head. Exactly. <laughs> you know what? That, my writing group, I read that chapter to them and they're the ones that are like, we want to know what you were thinking. Mm. You know, that's an example of getting feedback from people in your story. I had said in the first version, I had lots of thoughts for that officer. <laughs> Right. They're like, we want to hear what those are. Yeah. yeah. I love that. I love that. Thank you. Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? I welcome my next guest for a second time. She was on Season 2, Episode 23. At that time, we hadn't yet met in person, and she was still working on completing her book, Hidden Identity. I was thrilled when she accepted my invitation to join me again since she has self-published her memoir this year. Her name is Lynn Grubb. Episode after episode of Listening to Lynn read her words on the Adoption Experience podcast, I enjoyed learning more to her journey. For a long time, Lynn has been generous to the adoption community by sharing her knowledge, perspective, and experience as an adopted person in reunion. Lynn is a Peruvian-American adoptee, as well as a parent by birth and adoption. She has published multiple essays at her blog, No Apologies for Being Me, and in various adoption anthologies. In 2015, she created and self-published The Adoption Survival Guide, Adoptees share their wisdom and tools. Using genetic genealogy, she was able to identify her paternal ancestry and now helps other adoptees do the same. In this episode, she will share part of how she was able to finish her book, create her podcast, the business of self-publishing, the power of being a genealogist, and so much more. Allow me to introduce to you for the first time or again, someone who is a wealth of information inside and outside of the adoption community. If you're interested in the best way to navigate search and reunion and or writing your words for publication, she's your person. Having met her in person last year, I know for sure that she is a wise, fun, and sincere human being. So, Lynn, I am so thrilled that you said yes to a a second conversation with me because you will be the first guest to return to the podcast. So I want to thank you for that. Oh, 
I wasn't aware that I was the first guest to come back. So that makes me feel very honored and I appreciate the invite. Yes. And the last time you were on, it was season two, Mm -hmm. I believe episode 23. We recorded it June 25th and it would air August 10th of 2021. And we had not yet met in person. And so when I got a chance to meet you in person at the NAP conference in Indianapolis last year, I was just thrilled because here's the thing. You would be the first adoptee that I would see once I arrived there. When I saw you, I was like, that's Lynn. Like, I just got so excited. <laughs> so I kind, of, yeah. I kind of feel like we have some sort of soul tie. Yeah, I think so, too. Maybe it's the location of where our stories have unfolded. Yeah. It's just so much that we have in common. And it's maybe it's all of it. All of it. We did have a good time at that conference. I don't know, just being in the same space with you is a joy. And I know that at the time of our recording and even the airing of your episode, you had finished your book, but it hadn't yet been published. So now having you back, I'm so like excited to talk about your creating the podcast, the adoption experience, and you did that April of this year, 2022. I want to talk about self-publishing your memoir, Hidden Identity. I just love that title. And Thank then the, and then one other thing that's important to me, too, is the power of you sharing the power of being a genealogist. You know, you can share whatever you want, start from wherever you wish, but I know those three things I really want to spend some time with. Is that okay? Absolutely. So where do you want to start? Do you, do you like the idea of talking about your podcast? I like the idea of talking about how my book was, quote, finished the last time we talked. Okay, great, great. (laughs) Because it really wasn't. I just thought it was. Mm. I ended up getting some feedback from my writing group. And one of my friends, Lynn Miller, said, I really think you need a prologue. You need something. She sent me another adoptee type book that had one. She says, I think that would really help your memoir. So since you and I spoke, I wrote that. And then I also wrote an introduction, which I wanted to talk a little bit about. I was also encouraged by Lorraine Pittman to talk about my advocacy work more because it really wasn't in the, the first draft of my book. And so I did that in the introduction. Okay. And then I removed about four chapters. I had a lot of time to think about what I wanted to put out there, what was really important, I didn't want to bore the reader. I wanted to keep it moving. So I rethought a few of my chapters and I removed them. Okay. So that was, quote, the finished product, which wasn't really finished. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because I remember my editor saying, you need to get rid of, I mean, it had to be over 200 pages. And I would agree Uh with him. Yeah. Yeah. One of his things, just what you said is, what do you really want to say? And you certainly don't want to annoy the reader by any stretch of the imagination. If they can Google something or something they can look up, then Mm -hmm. yeah, let, let them do that. They know how to do that. And just, just focus on your story. I think you did it so well. Thank you. And another piece of advice I remember getting is don't underestimate the reader's ability to figure out what's going on without blatantly telling them. Mm -hmm. 
So I left a lot of parts, especially as it relates to my birth mom and our relationship. That's the part that a lot of people have the most questions about after they hear the, the book. I left it, a lot of it up to the imagination of the reader to figure it out. I didn't want to blatantly just say, this is what I think or feel, or this is the reality or the truth, because everybody has their own version of the reality and truth. And, you know, what she thinks my birth mother actually thinks is different than what I think or one of the readers or listeners. Right. So I felt like that was important to not over explain. Yeah. I guess that would be. And and I was going to save this for later, but it is a conversation. So if it's coming up for me now, I'm just going to say it. Okay. It's based on what you just said, I felt in chapters 32, 33, and 34, I said, wow, Antonio, your birth father was an extraordinary man. You never said that, but no. I felt it. In, in, I'm so glad you did. I feel it too. Yeah. Like I was like, wow, you know, yeah, your words describe that to me, him being an extraordinary man. So I didn't I'm mean to really jump did. ahead, but. No, uh... that's great. I'm glad that you said that or felt that because again, I wanted the reader to make their own opinion about him, not just based on the stories I heard about him right. for the years that I didn't know his identity. You know, we're all a mix of good and bad, and we all have gifts and um, weaknesses. And I really wanted to balance it without it sounding like he only had good points. I don't want to ruin the story, but because I never got to meet him, I had to go with other ways to get to know him through interviews, through research, any way I could get to know him through other people. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm now thinking about your birth mom, Leela, and mm-hmm. one of the chapters that was just funny to me, I guess because I have a background in law enforcement, was chapter 13, Awkward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know what else to call it. <laughs> yeah, like the, you really put me there because I pictured me being that officer to stop you two. And, and when you say something on the lines of, well, I don't even know her drinking habits, like in your head. Exactly. <laughs> you know yeah. what? That, my writing group, I read that chapter to them, and they're the ones that are like, we want to know what you were thinking. Mm. You know, that's an example of getting feedback from people in your story. I had said in the first version, I had lots of thoughts for that officer. <laughs> right. And they're like, we want to hear what those are. Yeah. So, yeah. I love that. I love that. Thank you. I guess one of the things, too, when I was listening, I just loved hearing you, your voice. That's another thing I want you to know. It's just having met you and knowing mm-hmm. the major contributions you've made to the community to, to hear you share your words in your voice. It, it was very powerful. And your, re- you. your references to music, you know, songs and musical artists, I just love all of that. Thank you. That's was my favorite thing and and putting it in and I had to be careful because you're really not you have to get permission from a publishing company to to actually word for word use lyrics Mm -hmm. so I had to be really careful and you know describing the song and describing what it was without overstepping the rights of somebody else who wrote the song right so it was a tough balance but I I feel like I did okay just by kind of describing what the song meant to me, mm-hmm. you know, everybody has their own interpretation. 
songs mean different things to different people. And it's such a big part of my life. Music has always been such a big part of my life. And it's been such a big part of my journey, search and reunion journey, and also just the story of my birth parents as it unfolded. Yeah, me too. Like songs are a big part of my life because you can listen to a song and can put you back into a period of time or an experience. Absolutely. Yeah, just yeah. take you right there. It's so tied to our memory and right. our emotions, I think. And I'm a very sensitive and emotional person, which I try to come through with the that description of me, which, you know, one of my chapters was sensitive. But I never really recognized that about myself because I came from a family who really wasn't that way, an adoptive family, I should say. Mm-hmm. So it's something that I realize not everybody has this sensitivity to music. It's just been so meaningful to me and it just helps me process anything that comes up, including the stressful events surrounding, you know, meeting my birth mom and the revelation of what she told me. I know the other thing that I really appreciated in your book was your reference to the team that really helped you in your search. I just pictured a group of people that were really in your corner. Yeah. And that's really how, how it happened. I felt like the universe always had my back. Mm -hmm. Like when Greg showed up, to help me. I mean, literally, I met him within a week of testing my first DNA test at Family Tree. He just randomly emailed me and was like, can I help you? And I was like, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, please. Right. (laughs) And then eventually, you know, Greg kind of faded out because people come in and this was a long, long search. So at some point he couldn't help me anymore. He told me the same thing Gay later told me my other searcher, DNA searcher, that you have to wait for closer matches. Like there's no more things we can do other than wait. And that's hard, especially when you hear stories of adoptees all around you who put their DNA in and they get a close match right out of the gate. You start to kind of, it's a little bit of a pity party sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I know waiting can be hard and I know there's a part in your book where you talk about the whole Facebook social media with Antonio, your birth father, accepting your friend request. And I I just thought, yeah, I felt that. And Oh, my gosh. I was so freaked out. And I logged in on Mother's Day to discover that. I was away with my daughter on a little mini trip out in the country. And I just couldn't believe it. I was like, is this really happening? Yeah. (laughs) And so much... Yeah, happens from that point mm-hmm. to, yeah, like later on. Yeah, waiting can be hard. Yep. Yeah. I, w- I want to come back to a few things that we did touch upon when you were here before. And, and I consider the cradle being a character in your book. Um, oh, yeah. For yeah, sure. for sure. And so... Have you had an opportunity to talk with them since you've published? I have not. Okay. As I mentioned in the book, I have a love-hate relationship with them. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think most adoptees from that agency do. Even yeah. like I'm not from that agency, but I, I feel that love-hate too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's funny. After the Adoptee Survival Guide was published, my mom wrote the cradle a letter and sent a copy of the book 
she never heard back. So she was kind of annoyed by that, but she was letting him know, look, my daughter, you know, published this book and she was proud of it. So, but no response whatsoever. So, you know, it's not like I want their approval or anything. And I've heard from other people who do speaking for them. They're just not very open. They're not open to the kinds of conversations that we have in our community. You know, they're very pro-adoptive parent. I did kind of hope the social worker who helped me find Leela would have listened to my podcast, but I didn't have the nerve to send it to her. Like, I felt like that's kind of a gutsy thing to do. Like, here, listen to my podcast, but maybe it's not. It just really, I didn't even think about it. You know, there were a lot of things going on simultaneously. And and I think for most people in our lives, there, there are things that are going on back to back to back. And I remember just really pausing when you were talking about your husband, Mark, and, and what was going on in the midst of other things going on. And I just want to ask you, is he doing okay? Oh, yeah, he's he's improved. Good. I mean, he did have the emergency heart surgery. And that all happened at the same, like, a month before I figured out who Antonio was. So it was a lot. And I will say, and I don't really stress this so much in the book. It's one of the chapters I removed. But during that year, we did have marital problems in 2020. Mm -hmm. And so we had a lot of stuff to work through, which was exacerbated by my discovery. Right. How how would you say you best navigated that year? Did you have any um, tools specific to for marriage or in reunion? <laughs> just yeah, I <laughs> guess reunion. yeah, just in general, you know. Because I, I well, just recently heard this quote. I don't know who whose it is. I I hope I find out um, and put it in the show notes. But the best way out is to go through, and that's been really oh, yeah. I've been sitting with that because yeah, that resonates with me. So I'm I'm coming from that perspective with my question, like how did you manage that time it just seems like it was a really hard time okay well the first thing I did is I made use of the space in the basement where I'm actually sitting right now mm-hmm. I have um, an office down here I have um, a little tv area I moved a lot of my stuff because we don't have a really big house down to this area and just having the space now my kids laugh and call it mom's apartment <laughs> But uh, <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So, and they know better. Um, well, my one son, he doesn't live here, but Matt in the book, but you know, Maggie, she still lives with us. So she knows not to come down here without <laughs> knocking or at least announcing herself. Right. Right. <laughs> so that was very helpful. Just having some space to process. And mm-hmm. then I think I mentioned in that book I did that I started therapy, trauma therapy. Okay. Because I felt that same old trauma, those emotions coming back that I felt when I first found Leela. And I just knew that I needed somebody to help me process. Yeah. Yeah, I did some EMDR through uh, the computer. I actually never met my therapist in person because, you know, during the pandemic, she did therapy through Zoom. Mm -hmm. So it was very helpful. So those two things, just giving it time, like. Mark and I just needed space, and he also started therapy. So we're both very pro-therapy. 
So those are the things that we did for the most part, just get some space, get some therapy and give it time. Yeah. And that's the go through. You're going through it. You just, you know, it's going to get better, but it might get worse for a little while. Right. It it might be better. ugly before it's beautiful. Right. <laughs> there <Yeah>. you go. <laughs> and, you know, being married for a really long time, we've been married 31 years at that time, you know, 28, was it 28? Yeah. So we knew, we know each other so well. Mm-hmm. And we also have been through other storms. So it's just time. And, and Mark has been very supportive of my search. And he, he was thrilled that I found Antonio. Of course, he was very disappointed. I never got to meet him. He's always been there for me 100% on this journey. Yeah. And that comes through back to what we were talking about earlier. Oh, good. I'm yeah, so not saying that. it, but, yeah. in, you know, just... Well, the phone calls that he made for me and telling my adoptive mom that I found my birth mom. I mean, those are huge. Right. Like he called up Leela's friends and were like, hey, tell me who Lynn's father is. My child and my wife have a right to know this. Exactly. So he was a great advocate for me. Um, Didn't help. She didn't. No one coughed up the name. But, (laughs) (laughs) you know, he at least tried. And I, I really appreciate that about him. Yeah, I do, too. I think it's so important when our partners are in our corner. Yeah, like really through the whole process because it is, it's difficult. So just very difficult reunion. Our journeys, they're complicated as we've all said and complex. Yeah, and I think, I think, I don't, I think I might have pulled this out of the book, but my husband experienced parental abandonment too in childhood. So he got it. He didn't get to really know his dad until he was an adult. He just really could empathize with the situation. Mm-hmm. And he absolutely loved his father so much. And his father died young. So he just always was left feeling like I never got the opportunity to spend enough time with him. And that's how we as adoptees feel a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that there's a quote in your book that I really like. And I think it's from chapter, let me see. Oh, let me find it. Cause I kept reading it over and over again. I was like, yep. It's <laughs> chapter 28. The average person does not spend 15 years of their life trying to, to figure out who their biological parents are. <laughs> exactly. Right. And I thought about uh, just a bunch of different adoptees who've spent Far more time than that. Like, yeah, the average yeah. person doesn't no. have to try it's, to figure it's really, out. <laughs> it's an experience that is very unique to us. This is common, too, that I don't really talk about this in the book, but I have a friend who had a 10-year relationship with her biological father and then did her DNA and found out he wasn't, in fact, her father. Mm. So she was trying to establish a new relationship with the actual father without hurting the one that she had already established a relationship with. And that's not unusual because of DNA, this is happening. Yes. Yeah. That's very tricky. That's like an added, a layer of complexity. Yeah. Like that's so true. But I love that, that, that line of yours because I think it really puts in perspective for a non-adopted person just a part of what we're dealing with as adoptees. Yeah. Yep. So true. I have other parts of your book chapters notated that 
I want to kind of save towards the end. So let's talk about the creation of your podcast. I just think that was a brilliant way to self-publish. Thank you. Yeah, some of it was laziness. <laughs> <laughs> Did you find it pretty easy to do? Okay, so I actually started the podcast in 2020, but didn't do anything with it. My son had been nagging me. He's like, he's really into podcasts and he sends me podcasts all the time. And so he was like, I think you should start your own podcast. And he even gifted me with a microphone and just kept telling me this. So wow. by 2022, I know he's really supportive as well. So by 2022, he nagged me. So then I, I was listening to this podcast. It was a Joe Rogan podcast. He had a musician on there, of course, because, you know, I love learning about musicians. I wish I could think of her name. That would be helpful. But it was a three hour interview with her. Then that inspired me to listen to her memoir. It was in her voice and it was just so powerful. I was like, this is what I want to do. This mm. is what I want to do. It just makes you feel like you're getting to know the person better when you can hear them telling the story. Absolutely. So that that's what inspired me. It was Jewel. I knew it would come to me. Jewel. It was her memoir. She's just very interesting to listen to, too. So I highly recommend that to anyone listening. If you don't like memoirs, hers is a good one. Okay. So, yeah. I so used to listen to her music. Yeah. I remember you <laughs> taking me back. Yeah. <laughs> her story is so fascinating. I didn't know the history of how she even got into it. She just had a very unique upbringing. So that's what makes the story really interesting for me. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the music. She plays music also on the actual audible version of the memoir. That's another thing I love about audible memoirs is you get to hear other things. There's like bonus material. Mm. So back to my podcast, I had already named it the adoption experience because I, at my blog, no apologies for being me. I had written a little tagline, a blog about the adoption experience and had been there for years. So then I thought, well, it just makes logical sense. I'll just take that little tagline, the adoption experience, and name my podcast that. So when I was actually recording, I was a total newbie. I don't have any good equipment. I ordered Podbean. I just literally talked into my phone. And sometimes I'd walk around my yard and play ball with my dog and listen to each chapter back. And if I messed up, I didn't know how to edit. I just re-recorded it. <laughs> I was really not I was a total newbie when I did this and you can probably tell like certain chapters you can hear a little tick tick in the back I think that's a microphone issue and sometimes you can hear a little squeaky noises I'm sure you've noticed because you're a good editor <laughs> yeah well you know I, I have to say real quick that it was not the least bit distracting to me oh, good. because I'm of the story because yeah I, was, yeah, with, I just I couldn't that. Couldn't wait to get to the next episode. So you did a oh, really great yeah. job. Good. I'm glad. That's really the important thing for me. Also, it's it's easy to get wrapped up into all those little details and become highly perfectionistic. I do have a, a tendency to lean that way. And I was like, you know what? This isn't going to be perfect. You're not perfect. So don't try to make everything perfect because it's really about the story. Mm -hmm. Like if people want to hear the story and if if it's something that they're interested in or it just speaks to them, they'll, they'll continue to listen. It doesn't right. have to be perfect. So there is one place where I repeat an entire sentence. I don't know if you picked up on that. 
Um, <laughs> so those little things, and I'm like, you know what? I'm just not a perfect, I'm an imperfect person. So my podcast is going to be imperfect. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of how I had to come to that realization that it's never going to be exactly perfect. Right. I'm just going to throw this out there. I know people who have teens and they've been podcasting and they've got all, you know, just a bunch of people that follow them and they aren't perfect. They're like noticeable things that happen during an episode. And, and I learned this too, cause I listen to a lot of podcasts that, that I stay tuned in because of what they have to say. And I am right. yeah, not the least bit distracted by all the imperfections. Oh, that's good to know. Mm-hmm. That's good. And my son listens to a lot of podcasters who just do monologues. And that's what he was trying to get me to do. And I was like, who's going to care what I have to say, you know? But he's like, listen, all these comedians do it and you should do it. Boy, <laughs> so, you have an encouraging son. It's he like does. so cool. Is, I am very fortunate with the men in my life. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, because sometimes the guys, they, you know, they, they're not interested in yeah. things like that. But that's great. Yeah, that's great. Matt was really happy to learn who his grandfather was, too. I I have friends whose kids don't really care that much. Mm-hmm. But he's been really involved as well. And he was very, very happy to know who his grandfather was. Um, he was very disappointed that we didn't get to meet him. But, yeah, he was all in. And uh, he couldn't believe the DNA because he doesn't understand genetic genealogy. So I kept trying to explain to him, you know, this is how I know that this is him. He's like, are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, short of getting his DNA. I'm sure. <laughs> Shout out to Matt. How old is Matt? <laughs> he is 28. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's great. We work together. Mm-hmm. So we see each other every single day. We're very close. And uh, sometimes we get on each other's nerves because, you know, working with family can get <laughs> iffy yeah. at times but yeah overall he's great he's a great son I couldn't ask for a better son so you got it out there did it launch in April of 2022 yep yeah I just decided I'm like I've just made a decision and I just started recording and I got about I did it in groups of a third so I did I did all the chapters and each I released them all in big chunks. So I didn't release them one at a time. Like some people do. Mm -hmm. I just put them all out there. I'm guessing you moved through any fear that might've crept in, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, before I got to the point of actually recording, I had a lot of fear to work through. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I needed that time between our last conversation and this summer. Well, it was spring actually. That was what, nine months a lot of stuff happened in that time frame. So my birth father actually died. I got to meet and spend time with my aunt. Well, not my aunt, my first cousin on the paternal side. I was able to get more conversations with family members, learn more things, find more records. And so, so many things happened during that time. And then as I was working through the fear of publishing, I said, okay, I'm not publishing this book. I'm putting on a shelf. I can't tell you how many times I told my husband this. I'm not publishing. He's like, okay. <laughs> he knew. He knew. Mm-hmm. He didn't even say it. He knew I was going to. Right. But he also knew that I needed him to say, okay, you don't have to publish. So I was just okay with that for a while because all of the fears of my birth mother telling me I was conceived in rape, 
that was one of the things that really held me back because I didn't know if I would get a lot of flack for addressing that. That topic is very sticky. And now, especially with Roe v. Wade being overturned, even more so. Mm-hmm. That was one of the big things that really I kept going in circles about. And I would talk to my writing group about it. And But no, no one in my writing group has that same circumstance. So it was hard for them to say, well, you know. Don't worry about it, Lynn. Right, right. <laughs> you know, it was something I only I could work out inside myself to do that. I needed, I just, the only thing I can say is time. And then once I feel like there was a healing that took place, I don't know how to really describe it other than I think I released any responsibility for that part of the story from myself because it's not really my fault, even though I felt like I was carrying that responsibility. I think I released that. And then I said, finally, I was ready to say, okay, I'm ready to tell this story. It was no longer triggering me every time I thought about publishing. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that explains it very well, but. (laughs) Well, for me, it does. And I think the reason we writers publish is because we really have something to say. Yeah. And that's the, that's the main point. So. Yes. So we can help other people. And then another thing, reason I think at least I published and I would imagine other writers do too, is because I didn't know who I was for so long. I want other people to know who I am. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like I have this identity that was hidden from me for so long. And now I'm like, look, I have this, I have, I have the scoop. (laughs) You know, like you want other people to know you. And so part of my, intention when I was writing was also to be able to pass this on to my descendants or anybody who knew me, you know, in life, once I'm gone, if they didn't know me that well, and they wanted to get to know me a little better, they could listen to my memoir. Right. It's there, right. It's there. Exactly. And I love the title hidden identity. Thank you. I think that comes from reading so much Nancy Drew growing up. (laughs) All of those books were like, you know, secret in the attic all those kinds of titles. I'm a big mystery buff. I love crime shows. I watch crime shows all the time. I just love them. And anything related to DNA and genealogy especially is, is interesting to me. So I thought it's a mystery. It's a, it's my whole life was a mystery. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, that leads us right into the power of being a genealogist, which I think is great that you're doing that. Well, I feel like it's kind of like taking taking the search into your own hands. Mm. You know, we can't really control what other people do or say or don't tell us. So I feel like it allows us, you know, adoptees are kind of control freaks. I'm also a control freak when it comes to information. Yeah. So <laughs> you can go back and look at old newspapers. You can order, like when my father died, I ordered his death certificate. To me, it's the paper trail and a documentation of of facts. And because as adoptees, we don't even know if our own birth certificates are true. I think that lends us to be more interested in proof and actual evidence. Even though paper trails aren't always perfect evidence, they are something that we, you know, we didn't grow up having because our identities were sealed, at least adoptees in the U.S., So I think that's really powerful that we can use public records and tools, the tools of genealogy, including DNA, 
to discover more about ourselves and our families. Mm-hmm. That's so well said. And I'm thinking in your book, when you talk about all the different DNA agencies that you submitted to and the power of that, why that's important, because I only submitted to Ancestry, but when I was listening to you, I was like, yeah, that that's important. Yes, and the reason is, is because, like you, a lot of people only submit to one. First of all, the cost. Second of all, most people who submit their DNA already know their parentage. They may still be trying to learn more, maybe about their ethnicity or about a particular relative of theirs. But the average person puts their DNA knowing who their parents are. As adoptees, a lot of us don't know when we submit. And so the standard advice, and this started with Greg, but Richard Hill also talks about it. Richard Hill, who wrote, oh darn, I can't think of his name, but he's a DNA expert. He tells everyone to fish in all ponds. Yeah. And so that's what I did from the beginning. And anybody I help, that's the first step is getting your DNA and all the databases, MyHeritage, 23andMe, Ancestry, GEDmatch, Living DNA is another one, but it's a lot of European. So it just depends on what your background is. Of course, some of us don't know our backgrounds. Right. <laughs> but if you do know, <laughs> it's helpful. There's certain DNA tests that are better for people who are from like South America versus European, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But more is better than one. It just gives you more chances to connect with different cousins. It gives you more evidence that you are related to a particular family. Yeah, I'm glad you shared that here and in the book. Yeah, that's pretty important. And so I wanted to ask you about a person wanting to create a podcast. Do you have any guidance for that as it relates to reading your book or publishing your book? Sure. Well, I can say that for me, it was pretty easy. I just signed up for Podbean. And Podbean is a free app you can put on your phone and you can just talk into your regular iPhone to record. So that to me was desirable because it was very easy. So if you're wanting, there's probably other people that have really great studios and really great equipment and use better things, but you don't have to have, let's keep it simple. Right. I hear you saying you (laughs) don't have to have anything elaborate. No, you don't. And one of the struggles as I mentioned, is why does anybody care what I have to say? So that might be the critical thought in your head. But if you really start writing down what it is that you know, just from your life experience, or maybe some work environment that you've worked in or anything, there's all sorts of people out there that want to know what you know. Mm-hmm. And so I think don't sell yourself short would be some advice that there's always going to be something that you have to say that will be of interest to somebody else. Yes. And your audience can find you as long as you title your episodes properly, use hashtags and put your category under whatever it is that you're talking about. There's little tricks that you can do for people to get your podcast, but I haven't really advertised mine much and I have about 2000 listens. That's great. Cause I, I, I don't know if that's good, but I well, think, I think so. And I think word of mouth is the best way. I really, cause, okay. cause I, that's how I learned about you having completed that project on that nap happy hour. I believe it was, it yeah. was like, Oh wow, it's out. Like I need, I didn't know, but yeah. And, and because I didn't go the traditional route, like most people publish a physical book, 
and it's all over social media. I didn't really do that. Like mm-hmm. uh, part of my whole process was keeping it simple. Right. So like I felt like, and this was somebody else who shared with me. It was somebody I helped find her biological father. She says, she said to me, Len, when you're ready to publish, your audience will find you. Mm. People that need to hear your message will find you. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's pretty brilliant. <laughs> I think I agree with that because that's what's happening yeah. with this podcast, my podcast too. It's like, I get, great. yeah, I get emails. Oh, I found it. And I'm always like, wow, you did? Like, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> but you know what? I took an internet genealogy course and it's all about the search terms. So sometimes you can narrow your search by putting quotes around a couple, like a phrase or words. Mm-hmm. You can narrow your search on Google. There's so many ways to find things just with the right keywords. So reading aloud your book, how did that make you feel? Because I think that also might be or give guidance to someone maybe sitting on the fence about doing it the same way you did. I was really shocked and did not expect that while I was reading the chapters, it would help me heal even more. It would help me accept my story even more. I don't know. There was something very powerful about it that's kind of hard to put into words. I would just say, try it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Another thing I did before I actually read it as a podcast is I have this thing in Word that the voice reads it out loud. And that helped me also find errors in my book. So I would recommend that to people as well. Mm-hmm. But actually listening to my own story, I decided I'm just going to listen to my story while I was walking one day at the gym. I actually started crying to my own story. Yeah, that's what... <laughs> in parts that I felt were emotional or that I still obviously felt touched by, not triggered, but touched. Right. And I could say that I just felt like, again, that was another piece of healing for me to listen to my own story from beginning to end. I don't know. There was something final about it. Once I listened to it all the way through where I was like, okay, this is done. Mm -hmm. I can move forward in my life now. Yeah. You're on the other side of it. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. But, you know, because the search took so long, I felt like in some ways it was dragging me down because just having that final piece not tied up and, you know, I'd been writing, but I knew I couldn't publish it until I discovered my father's identity. I have not done an audio of my book, but I did record one chapter, like on an episode here Uh and just reading it aloud. Yeah. It was something, some, like you said, like an additional healing going on. So I think that that's a really good process. And you know, I didn't expect it. That's the thing that's so bizarre. (laughs) I didn't expect it. It was a surprise for me. Yeah. A pleasant surprise, but I really didn't expect it. I think my actual goal of listening to it was just probably my perfectionistic tendency to see if there's any errors. Do I need to re-record any chapters? <laughs> <laughs> you sound like me. I'd be thinking that way too. <laughs> it, I think it comes from working in law. Yeah. Like I'm a very detail oriented person, but it was because I was trained that way in my profession. So I'm always looking for things and I notice spelling errors and all of that stuff, but. Again, it doesn't need to be perfect. It really doesn't. I'm just glad you did it. It, And it was a great job. And one of the other things that popped up for me is, mm, well, let's just say, let me just say this. Any listener who's 
been checking into Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, even if it's just one episode. There's kind of a theme going through, which is get it out of your head and write, even if you don't publish. And that I truly want to encourage adoptees to to share their stories. As you said earlier, there's somebody that does want to hear it. There's somebody that needs to hear it. And and the narrative as an adult adopted person needs to be out there. Absolutely. I know the work that you do encourages other people to write and publish. And so what words of encouragement do you have for adoptees wanting to write their memoir and become a published author? I would say commit to it and commit to doing a little bit every day if you can, even if it's 10, 10 or 15 minutes, just do it. And, you know, you don't have to publish it right away. The first draft is just going to be kind of a regurgitation of your story. Um, get it all down. That's the first step. So I want to encourage you just to place importance on it and realize that this is, again, you don't have to publish. Don't pressure yourself about the publishing piece. Just either sharing your story verbally with someone or writing it or typing it, whatever is the best medium for you. Just getting it out of your system and sharing it with another person, I think, is very, very healing and I encourage everybody to just just do it, just start it. And here's another thing I want to say, Jennifer, don't worry about doing it in order. Like if you have a chapter on your heart, if there's one part of your story that you just want to write about, write about it. Mm-hmm. Don't start at chapter one. You don't have to start at chapter one. My brain doesn't work that way. My chapters were all over the place. And so if you have one piece of your story that you are feeling you want to write about just just do it just start very good so going back to your book I, I said earlier there was uh, something else I wanted to mention because I think it's really important in your story sure. and it has to do with Kimberly and so would you mind because you're sharing that really I thought was being very vulnerable and a big mm-hmm. life change in your family. So whatever yeah. you want to share about that would be great. Okay. Well, for people who haven't listened to my podcast or story yet, Kimberly was my stepdaughter. And she had a crisis pregnancy. And the family decided that we would raise her daughter. And what we didn't know is that she would leave town and not stay in touch with us. We adopted her baby. So that's kind of the background. (laughs) Yeah. I knew a little bit about it because you you and I had talked about it, but listening to your your words from the book, I just imagine that that's hard, and yet you did it. You and Mark did that. Yeah, it was definitely not something that we ever imagined would be happening, but because I've been... I've done work in CASA and custody and um, abuse and neglect. I know that most families don't expect these types of things to happen. Right. Somebody can quickly pass away and a child could be available to come to your house like in 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So that part I was able to digest. Okay. Because I'd seen it in my, where I work and in those experiences, I think the hardest part of that journey was, realizing that 
our daughter wasn't going to have her biological mother in her life because we didn't plan for that. Of course, we thought she would be here. Mm-hmm. That was the hardest piece. And it also threw me into, well, you know, they call it out of the fog. I, I don't really consider myself a super foggy adoptee, at any point. <laughs> but whatever fog was still hovering, I got blown out of the water when she came to us Right. <laughs> because I could not help but see that her mother left her just like my mother did. Mm-hmm. And that, I don't mean that to sound like, oh, my mother's going to abandon her. I mean, my daughter was going to experience the same thing as me, which was, we don't know who our mothers are. We didn't get to know them. We didn't get to have them in our lives. Right. And so it was a crisis moment for me where I was like, oh my God, it's happening again. And oh my God, it happened to me. Right. You know, like any smile I had about it was no longer, I was no longer capable of repressing. So, but I can picture was, you as an adopted person being able to answer a lot more questions than a non-adopted person would. Oh my gosh. <laughs> my whole thing was I'm giving her everything I didn't have. So right. I journaled, I journaled her entire story. I have pictures of her birth mom and her birth dad together. I have just everything I could save the hospital stuff, the wristband, pictures of her of the c-section she has everything wow that's wonderful lynn yeah i was really happy to be able to give that to her yeah she does have a i don't think i mentioned this in the book but she does have a relationship with her biological father and his entire family okay good good yeah so that's been wonderful helping that along i don't really have to intervene anymore she's 17 she contacts them on her own Mm-hmm. But we all have a really great relationship and we see them all around the holidays. And it's just been wonderful seeing the way adoption can be done well, the way it wasn't done in the closed years. Um, it's just been really a learning experience for all of us. She's got another dad. Right. Well, you know, your story, your sharing of it is it's just a perfect example to me of what it, it's about to be connected to the adoption community. And also the best way out is to go through. And that's what you have done and are doing. And I did want to ask you about how do you stay encouraged and avoid burnout as you make major contributions to the adoption community? Well, I have to take breaks. Um, right now I'm actually on a social media break because a lot of the posts were upsetting me. (laughs) So I take breaks. I have picked up a new hobby. I do gardening. That's really a great stress reliever, getting your hands in the dirt. So I think the important thing is to stay balanced and not to get too involved to the point where you feel like you just want to quit. And I've seen a lot of advocates quit over the years, especially in adoptee rights. And so for me, you know, I focus on going to the NCSL to educate every year, but between those events, I'm not super involved in that. So I really try to space out my work. And there are people that I've turned down podcasts for because it's just, it's just not the right time or the right fit. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I I say no, I have to use the no muscle. Yeah. And, and that, that's helpful. I only say yes to things that I think are really going to be encouraging for other people. And that I have the bandwidth to manage at that time. 
you know, based on my other responsibilities. I'm glad you shared that. And and I agree you have to maybe do something that's totally away from the adoption community. I started gardening, growing tomatoes and okra and green peppers, like doing something, like you say, getting your hands in the dirt. And that kind of takes your mind off of adoption. Oh, my gosh. You can process <laughs> so much when you're gardening. Yeah, I've been shocked at the level of things that just pop into my head that I'm like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. It's just, I don't know, there's something really meditative about it for me. Mm-hmm. And listening to other podcasts that are not adoption related is one of the things I do. So I, I appreciate you sharing that with me and the listener because we don't want burnout and we really have to support each other and, and figure out a way to stay connected. So thank you for that. Absolutely. And Lynn, I wanted to thank you for encouraging me with your feedback on your episode 23 about the audio drama that I did, which is episode two and three. I really appreciated your support. It really inspired me to do my own podcast. I probably should have mentioned that before, but just hearing your story with the different voices and the backgrounds, you did it really, really well, by the way. I was like, wow, this is just so powerful. And so I think hearing that really inspired me. So I think both of us, you and I are in the, in the business of inspiring other people. That's why we do what we do. We want other people to feel compelled to tell their stories, to heal and to share their journeys with other people. I don't know if there's anything I didn't ask you that you want to share in closing. Is there something in your notes, Jennifer, that you haven't um, asked me? Because I'm nosy. You want to know? Let me see. Let me see. Um, (laughs) Well, you know, last time you were here, because this happens a lot, like after the recording stop and, and even an episode airs, sometimes an adoptee and even me will think, man, I wish I had said that or asked that. So Mm -hmm. when you think back to our first conversation for the podcast, I know you shared a little bit about Leela and, and also what it was like when you got back from the reunion with her Mm -hmm. that you, yeah, you had a lot to process. And so that's what I remember about that recording. Is there anything that like afterwards that you, that came to you that you wish you had said then? No, but I just thought of something that people always ask me that I should probably address. Okay, great. People always ask me after they hear my story, does your birth mom know that you found your birth father? And the answer is, I don't really know because we don't have a relationship. If my maternal family members come to my blog or listen to my podcast, obviously they're going to know but I didn't announce it to her. So a lot of adoptees will tell their birth mom once they mm-hmm. find their birth fathers. And I just didn't feel that I needed to do that. So right. I wanted to answer the question in advance because people ask me all the time. Right. I hadn't thought of that. It's a good question. Yeah. Lynn, this has been great. I appreciate um, you taking the time to have this chat with me for the podcast and and I'm just so proud of you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really honored that you wanted to have me back and to talk about my book. And I hope 
it'll encourage other people to listen if they feel that this is something that can be helpful to them in any way. Yeah, I would have you back <laughs> again and again. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, I love to talk, so <laughs> anytime. <laughs> <laughs> It was the poet Robert Frost in his poem, Servant to Servant, that he stated, the best way out is through. Of course, I googled the meaning of the quote by Frost and read that it means to get some sort of healing for a situation, to get out and go through our ordeal wholeheartedly with inquiry and desire for self-awareness. Lynn, in her book, expresses so well how she did that. She is one of the most authentic people I know, and her genuine concern for other adoptees shines through and seems effortless. I appreciated hearing how she has provided as much information as possible to her daughter about her daughter's birth parents. Every time I think of that, it warms my heart. As adoptees, we know how very special it is to have answers to our questions about our beginnings and biological connections. Adoption can be done right when everyone involved is intentional about it. I agree with Lynn's belief that the universe has our back when people show up one by one to form a team to help us in our search. And Lynn, having her husband Mark and son Matt, Lynn, their support is simply the best. A shout out to both of them. Thank you, Lynn, for coming back and being so agreeable when I asked you to say yes. Your openness and honesty is a tremendous contribution to our community. By watching and listening to you, I'm always encouraged to continue being creative. I'm certain that there are so many other people who are also inspired to join the adoptee movement with their gifts. Congratulations again on publishing your memoir. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to you read your words. I want to clear something up that I clearly overlooked when producing this episode. While Lynn Grubb is my first guest to return in the spotlight upon my invitation, my dear friend Tina, who can be heard on this podcast, episode 45, was also a returning guest and technically the first one, though she put me in the spotlight for bonus episodes. I'll always appreciate her willingness to do that and be a gracious and kind host. Our time together can be heard on bonus episodes 68, part one, and an upcoming episode 85, part two. If you're an adoptee, and would like to share your adoption journey, please visit jenniferdianegoston.com. Thank you for being here, and please check out my website for other episodes, Once Upon a Time in Adopteeland.com. <laughs>